she wrote this song you know, about working nine to five. And I was joking with my fiance this morning. I'm like, she needs to rewrite the song to be like 5.30 a.m. to 6.45 and 8.30 to 9.12. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech podcast and this week's episode of the VocTech podcast Learning Continued which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. Now before we begin first of all how are you? What's the world like where you are as you listen into this? Reach out to us at podcast edtech on Twitter and tell us where you're listening in and how things are. We love to hear from you and whether you're a new listener or listening in for the 213th time, we salute you. Another thing I wanted to mention was this amazing session we've got coming up in November, which is our first live streamed episode of the VocTech podcast, which takes place on Thursday the 5th of November, 1 to 2pm local time as part of UFI's Week of VocTech Spectacular, celebrating the best of vocational technology. In this live streamed episode that I'm mentioning, we'll be looking at what's next for vocational technology and further education. And I've got amazing guests joining, including Shane Guilford, who is a further education hospitality chef and lecturer and Pearson Silver Award winner, TES finalist, EdTech innovator and MIE expert from Cheshire College South and West. And he'll be talking about the changes the hospitality sector is experiencing, chefing and digital strategies used to adapt to these circumstances at Cheshire College South and West. We've also got Egle uh, Viniscaiti, Director for Skillbright Labs, uh, and she'll be talking about learning and development in workplace learning, technology and training, with a special focus on user experience and not just content deployment. Um, and Egle has experimented her way through digital learning mediums as diverse as courses, apps, platforms, academies and VR and worked with such brands as Facebook, Google, HSBC, as well as some of the most exciting startups around. She has a master's in education from Harvard and is the Rising Star Award winner at the uh, Learning Performance Institute's Learning Awards 2020. And two more amazing guests, Dr. Marin Deepwell, CEO of the Association for Learning Technology and uh, the EdTech Podcast alumni as a guest. Um, ALT is an independent charity and the leading professional body for learning technology in the UK. And uh, Marin will be talking about Amplify FE, which is uh, an effort to establish a successful community of practice where vocational teaching staff are able to acquire, develop and share the digital and pedagogical skills they need to thrive in vocational education. And finally, really pleased to announce that I've also just heard that Chantal Wilson, who's the people director at Honest Burgers, which is making me very hungry just saying that sentence, uh, will be relaying her industry experience focused on how to achieve personalised learning at scale. So she's talking very honestly about easy and accessible tech to manage compliance and keep connected with her team across 2020 and with restaurants in very different circumstances across the country. You can sign up to hear and interact with all of these amazing guests at weekofvoctech.co.uk and because the session is live streamed, uh, you can post questions and comments which we'll bring into the podcast recording as it takes place. Um, And finally, the audio will end up here on the podcast feed, um, along with all our other best content. So if that sounds good to you, 
you can a spread the word uh, if that sounds like something you or your sector friends would like to hear about and that includes your international friends and those in the UK and b sign up so you get all the details on how to tune in. Now on to this week's episode. In this investor special, looking at the future of work experiment that is 2020, we interrogate some of the forecasts for the future of work now that many of them have come true. For example, the Office of National Statistics here in the UK stated that 46.6% of people in employment were doing some form of work at home as of April 2020, and that being largely because of COVID. But how many of them were happy about the shift? Who is paying their home lighting and heating bills? And what unfair distribution of success is homeworking having by function, i.e. depending on the level of human interaction needed? What about the people that can't work from home and what about the economy dependent on commuting? In this recording, we're looking at refining some of the positive aspects of the future of work and increasing accessibility. I also love that my guests are coming at this from very different angles. So they're both investors. Gansu Bayrak from Bethnal Green Ventures works with the Resolution Trust and Accenture to fund and support ambitious ideas for using technology to improve the lives of low-wage workers. And this is often referred to as worker tech, as you may have heard it. Whilst Alison Baum, one of the last few remaining in San Francisco, is general partner at Semperverance, an early stage fund investing in workplace technology companies that have a strategy to sell to and through employers. The firm's core platform includes a leading network of Fortune 2000 chief human resources officers. And prior to joining Semperverance, Alison has spent her entire career at the intersection of finance, technology and future of work with experience at Goldman Sachs and uh, also as an early employee at General Assembly, which sold to ADECO for $413 million in 2018. A huge shout out to my guests who were incredibly flexible and joined the recording in record time and across two time zones. So thank you to them. Let's jump straight into it. So absolutely brilliant. Uh, We're on our first EdTech podcast on StreamYard. So having a play with this platform. Um, And this episode really is about the future of work and the experiment uh, that is 2020 on that future of work subject. So this year, we've obviously had, because of the pandemic, a huge shift in working practices around the world, and especially in the Western world around remote working um, and uh, many of the facets of future of work that uh, we speak about. So Um, I've got two brilliant guests to talk about this topic, and especially with the lens uh, of investment. So uh, welcome to Alison Baum from Semperverance Venture Capital. Hey, Sophie, how are you? And also to Kanzu Bayrak, uh, Senior Partner at Bethnal Green Ventures. So welcome. Great to be here. Um, So I guess to start nice and easy, perhaps, Alison, if you want to go first, you could tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm a general partner at Semperverance, and we are a venture capital fund focused on companies that are transforming the relationship between the employer and the employee. So that's how we define the future of work. And we invest in early stage companies across healthcare, workforce, and financial technology, specifically those that are selling to or through the employer. 
And we focus on that area because our secret sauce is we have a network of about 1,500 CHROs or chief human resource officers who we work with really closely to understand how their workforces are changing in real time, how they're thinking about benefits and financial wellness for their employees. We leverage them for understanding um, you know, what budget line items look like when we're diligencing a company. And then finally, after we've invested, we activate the platform to help amplify our portfolio companies. Okay, fantastic. And I've just been binge reading many of your Medium articles on the future of work. So we'll, we'll come back to some of these points because it's amazing oh. how uh, prophetic they are, having been written in 2019 and now in 2020, um, <laughs> some of those sort of forecasts coming coming to light. So we can come back to that. But um, And Kanzi, would you be able to introduce yourself as well, please? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. This is John Su. I'm a senior partner at Bethnal Green Ventures. We are Europe's leading early stage tech forward VC, which means that we tend to invest in uh, tech and tech enabled products and services that improve uh, the livelihood of or general population, I would say. And we tend to invest for three main outcomes. And those are our quite wide investment themes as well, a better society, healthier lives and a sustainable planet. And I guess the way we tend to think about future of work under that quite quite big umbrella is something what we tend to call worker tech and that is mainly tech products and services for for the benefit of low-wage workers or workers coming from diverse backgrounds. That's absolutely brilliant and I I feel there's going to be a connection there because um, one of the points on on your blog that I was reading Alison on, on your post was about this decoupling of wages and productivity since the introduction of computers and I thought that was really fascinating um, and I suppose this ties into trends around the gig economy and actually the the complexity of that around actual remuneration and and some of these lower wages that you're talking about um, with Bethnal Green Ventures as well. Perhaps I'll park that one, but something to come back to. But I guess if we, we're going right back to the beginning about future of work, the future of work, I think, as a term was introduced uh, in 2007 and it was emblazoned across Business Week and Time magazine um, but before that, you know, in the 1920s, I think John Maynard Keynes, he was already talking about technological unemployment. Um, and then the former U.S. president, Lyndon Johnson, was talking about, you know, whether there would be some benefits around that. So, you know, removing the dullness from some of our work. So, um, you know, we we hear that even in, in some of the modern day conversations around uh, future of work. So the pros and cons. Um, but. I just wondered if we could dig into the term a little bit and, and how you would uh, both approach what that means. Uh, any um, way that you both uh, think of when you think of future of work? Who'd like to go first? I can start. I've done a lot of thinking about it because when I first started focusing on this area, I, I think I actually started with education and within education found that both my expertise um, as well as my sort of passion was really around how education was preparing people for the workforce. And that was a problem that I experienced myself um, being on the trading floor, back through the financial crisis, and seeing these very high value jobs become automated by algorithms. And so I saw kind of firsthand that not only was technology replacing jobs in real time at all levels of the economy, 
But also just a few years out of school, my economics degree was not interesting to technology employers. They didn't care that I had studied that or that I knew how to trade equity derivatives. They were looking for people with technology skills. So to me, that was just a very clear indicator that not only education, but also what employers are looking for is changing very quickly. And so as I decided to focus on the area, really thought about how to define it and break it down and put it into four categories. Um, One being automation. Um, So applied artificial intelligence, machine learning, robots, anything um, making work uh, more efficient and faster. And that's kind of the technological element of it. The second is human capital services. How do people find work? How do employers leverage people in a more effective way? Where do we fit into the equation? The third piece is new infrastructure. So whether it's real estate or um, you know cloud services, the fact that we're now doing work digitally in a distributed way, um, and we have this explosion of data about how we're working, we really need a new backend to fuel that and structure it for the future. And then finally, as the fourth piece of that, kind of this cybersecurity and identity management piece, where all of a sudden, if um, I'm operating in a digital sphere and I'm doing multiple jobs at once, I all of a sudden need new definitions around me as an entity and how I interact with other entities. So those are kind of the four broader categories. But my, per, again, kind of going back to when you're investing, it's possible to see there are opportunities, but you don't necessarily have the expertise to assess them correctly. And so I had to really take a deep, hard look at my experience and my expertise and have decided to focus more on that human capital services piece, because that's really where I come from and where I feel I have an edge. Uh, I love that. Yeah, I really love the example you gave around um, sort of truckers. and and But a lot of this was projecting into sort of 2032, you know, having this kind of flipped workplace. And here we are in 2020. And it's, uh, you know, pretty much um, realities. So um, Jansu as well, what, what's your own kind of future of work definition that you work to? So I guess I want to sort of take a step back and talk about like why we focus on tech and then how we came to work tech through that. Because what we tend to do at BGV is we, we know very well how to work with early stage companies and help them build, you know, meaningful products and services with an impact angle. But when it comes to specific impact themes, what we tend to do is we tend to work with an uh, expert organization. And for our worker tech track, we actually work with the Resolution Foundation. And uh, we, we, I think we started uh, to sort of shape a partnership in late 2016. And we are now just going to launch phase two. So we've done some work over the last three years, whereby we try we try to first um, uh, cultivate an ecosystem of uh, of entrepreneurship around it. Uh, so I'm trying to find, you know, trying to understand what are the meaningful issues that low wage workers themselves would like to solve, and how we can, you know, how we can make sure that the solutions are not coming top down. How we can empower these people to actually work on their sort of solutions. Can we help them cover the opportunity cost of becoming entrepreneurs and owning their own narrative in a way? So there's that part of it, and then we also started investing into these companies with resolution. 
Foundation, Foundation and now Resolution Ventures. And under that, I guess, like through the learnings from phase one, we've now landed on three main themes for what we're going to be looking at for worker tech in phase two, which is going to be the first phase, you know, the skill space, like Elson uh, highlighted. So it's not only upskilling and access to education and, you know, new skills, but also helping people navigate the ever-changing future of work uh, and like but through that helping them have um, a sense of security and you know again owning their own progress and being able to transfer to new roles or just being able to acquire the skills as as the demands in the marketplace change so there is there is that and then the second bit is also the recognition and transfer of those skills so you know yeah, definitely some of the skills that low-wage or frontline workers acquire, they, it might not be really obvious, but we find it really valuable for them to be able to communicate that clearly to their future employers and uh, through that improving their chances of, you know, getting better jobs. And I guess like the other big theme is like it's almost around equality and financial resilience as well. And I appreciate that these are really, really interconnected pieces. So because when I'm talking about that, my mind instantly goes to what we tend to call fintech for good, but different financial products and services. So there's definitely lots of convergence there. But we are very interested in, again, like platform services that might help people improve their finances while they're working in, you know, zero-hour contracts or, again, low-wage works. And then the final piece is um, improving and amplifying the worker voice. And this is actually, uh, this is an area that I'm particularly interested in as well, personally, uh, helping people to team up to work, make work right. I'm stealing that tagline from one of our portfolio companies organized, actually. <laughs> and uh, showing people that they actually have the power to improve the conditions uh, by putting pressure on the powers that be. So like, these are the three main areas that we will be looking at under, under work tech. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, well, that kind of brings me on to the, the next question, which is, uh, you know, we, we've seen this big shift around remote work, video conferencing, collaboration software, you know, as a result of the changes that have happened this year. And I just wondered, from what you've seen, and obviously, it's an ever changing situation, but um, has that changed any of your thinking around the future of work now that we've had a chance to sort of experiment with some of the ideas so the flipped workplace and experience the good and the bad. I feel like Elson is better placed to answer that in a more meaningful manner. But one thing that we've been thinking about is, and I, I was thinking about it when you mentioned the decoupling of productivity and pay, um, the, the traditional five-day work week uh, and whether that still makes sense in the current conditions that we found ourselves in and by extension, like how, how that might translate into... Uh, whatever the actual, not the new normal, but the normal normal becomes in the near future. Uh, so uh, I guess that's one of the areas that we, we've been thinking a little bit about. But I have I have to caveat that most of the future of work and productivity conversation I've seen in the VC space is around tools and tools that you know improve collaboration. I don't necessarily think that that's, that's an area we've spent too much thinking about under the tech forward lens. Not that there isn't space for it, but I feel like there are different, even more urgent areas that we are interested in that will have a more quick and direct effect on the livelihood of low-wage workers. Thank you. Awesome. I'm 
laughing about the five day work week because I recently watched a documentary about Dolly Parton. I don't know if you are familiar with Dolly Parton, but she's amazing. And she had this, uh, she wrote the theme song to this movie produced by Jane Fonda, which was called nine to five, which was one of the first movies produced and starring women. And so she wrote this song you know, about working nine to five. And I was, joking with my fiance this morning I'm like she needs to rewrite the song to be like 5 30 a.m to 6 45 and 8 30 to 9 12 and then 9 you know 9 30 to 12 15 and it's just a totally different mindset today about work whether it's the five-day work week or just this kind of structured work day it's definitely shifting um so I can relate to that so I've got two points on that. One is I saw Dolly Parton at Glastonbury when I was five months pregnant with my first child, uh, which was oh very fun. Gosh. And um, she's and such a performer. She's amazing. Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. And I mean, the, the other one is yes, it's fantastic that we can all work remotely because of the collaboration tools that we have. But I do, through conversations that I've had, see this point, which is that the people that are lucky enough to be working at the moment seem to be working sort of two, 300% compared to mm. what they were, because there isn't that kind of cutoff point. And that was blurring anyway. But I feel like that we are yet to perhaps develop the, the etiquette or the working culture around this new way of working. So, for example, is there space for uh, the HR departments that you talked about at the beginning to sort of say, you know, okay, um, if you have X amount of meetings or Zoom calls back to back, after so much time, you know, you need to do X, Y, Z to uh, look after your own health and things like that. And I just wondered if, if, so for example, we did an episode recently on student experience in higher ed. And part of that was building back in the kind of human element and using technology in a more sophisticated way, bring cohorts together to provoke uh working or learning or collaboration that isn't just arbitrary connect a to b um i don't know if you're seeing any kind of investment off the back of that that sort of tries to bring back that that human element definitely i think working in a digital distributed fashion requires a shift in mindset so when i talk about the flipped workplace i also think about it as flipping your mindset where we used to live in a world where your employer told you when you should work how you should work what you should be doing and now even if you are still working a regular job it's really more of an employee-like mindset i need to be more proactively communicating when I'm available, what you can expect from me, and I'm determining what I should be working on when. And so it really is a, a little bit of a new paradigm, and it requires a different skill set. A lot of those things you don't learn growing up. Um, you know, I think education now is forcing kids to think more proactively. But at the time when I grew up, education was really about listening to what your teacher told you and doing <laughs> what they said. And so it really is um, a, a new era of, of self-responsibility, which requires a different mindset and different skills. And this might cover both of your work, but um, something else I picked up on, on that you wrote was about physical labor impacting our physical health and then the knowledge economy is impacting our mental health as well. So I see a big growth around, you know, services that support em employee well-being and, and mental health 
Um, but yeah, just wondered from your own conversations whether that's something that you're seeing as well. Definitely. Uh, not only at BGV, but also in our portfolio companies as well. And for context, we, we've been investing since 2012. So we have a portfolio of 130 plus companies. So that's like that's a meaningful data set for us. But I guess one thing that I wanted to add on to Alison, it's definitely more, you know, it puts the employee in a position of power in terms of, you know, taking responsibility and ownership of your day and your tasks and productivity. But that's not really possible without working in an environment where you feel like you're trusted and you're supported and you can make mistakes. I think I'm also thinking about my own experience, uh, like previous experience, where I found myself in positions that was lacking and that actually puts an extra pressure on the individual to be not only almost super organized, which is not something that comes very easy to everyone. Like we, we have to be honest about that. And also doing that without feeling really supported. Uh, so I think like in expanding on your mental health conversation, I, I, there's a lot of tools and there's a lot of you know, conversation around mental health which is great, but that's not something that you can really solve by, I don't know, like integrating a bot in Slack or giving people credit so they can have one of therapy sessions or whatever. Like you need to be, you, I think in terms of, you know, managing a team or uh, just even with your co-working, like we need to meaningfully recognize that things have changed and then give people, you know, not only the tools, but also the mind space that they're trusted and they can trust each other in a way. And I find that, quite tricky because that also requires a whole different uh, skill set for particularly managers to have to be able to you know give give that uh, in a meaningful capacity that's something we've been talking to a lot of our kind of hr community about um there was a phase when the pandemic first hit and everybody was forced to work from home and there was a very clear focus on okay, how do we replicate what we were doing in the office, but in a digital environment? And it was very much about getting back to what existed before. But now as this reality has uh, set in, a lot of people are thinking, okay, we're in this for the long haul. We need to really reinvent things from the beginning. And as we've had that conversation, we're talking about what that means. How can we not only go back to replicate what was happening before, but actually take advantage of the unique elements of working in a digital distributed way. But that really falls into three different categories. And I think this goes to your point where you know, the future of work is not just about collaboration or productivity tools. It's also about something much, much deeper about, you know, the infrastructure that defines this relationship between employer and employee and individual and um, a worker. So I've actually broken that down into three categories. There's workflow, which is how do we actually get the job done? What's needed to do that? The second is culture. And culture I define as the framework for how work gets done. It's a set of institutionalized priorities that allow employees and liberate employees to make decisions and choices on their own without constant oversight. And then finally, there's compensation, which I think some elements of policy fall into that as well of, okay, if you really want to change how people work for the long run, you need to change their incentives. And so it's easy for employers to address the workflow piece because it's just really the the tip of the iceberg, but beneath that, there's this focus on culture and then compensation that still needs to be addressed. 
And I'd love to hear from both of you about any uh, kind of ventures and companies that you're working with um, that you can share in any of these areas as well. Uh, Dama would have mentioned Workerbird, I imagine. They're one of the companies that we've invested in through the WorkerTech partnership with Resolution Foundation. And what they do is they aim to improve the working conditions of the 6 million plus low-wage workers in the UK by making sure that people get paid what they're due and giving people a tool to be able to track and then, you know, be have a paper trail, so to say, uh, so that they know what they're doing and they can, you know, if they're not being paid what they're doing, then they can go and, you know, demand that. Um, I've already mentioned organize. It's almost like um, they're disrupting the union space in a way. Uh, it's a platform for workers to come together and uh, put campaigns out. And they actually have quite a few uh, high profile, at least in the UK, wins. So you might have heard of the Ted Baker case a couple of years ago. The campaigning for that was done and organized against workplace harassment, basically a culture of forced mm. hugs, I think that was the term. They have a big win for self-employed uh, support scheme. What's the, is it S-E-I-S-S, I think, uh, under uh, COVID-19 uh, support package that was introduced later on. Um, they have uh, one of the most recent ones they're working on at the moment is uh, by B2, B2 workers. So a scheme similar to ETAP to help out basically for for nail salons and you know hairdressers uh, to help them get a more stable income. So the way their um, uh, their member base grew uh, in the last six months, they went from hum. I think they, they saw 15, 15x plus growth and they're close to a million members at the moment show that there is a real genuine need for people to actually feel like they are empowered just by being just through feeling supported in a peer group. And, you know, when you're trying to make a point as just one person uh, that you might feel overwhelmed, you might feel scared, you know, particularly vis-a-vis massive organizations. But if you can do it with, you know, thousands of your colleagues uh, with you, then that really changes the conversation and the dynamic. So um, that's that's a company that I'm particularly happy to be working alongside. Uh, we have uh, we have Tendo which is, I was talking about the transfer of skills earlier, which is basically a digital passport for frontline workers. So they can, you know, they can certify the skills that they've gained and then they can take it to the next job they have. And hopefully that will translate into the way that they're compensated uh, because they can show, you know, that uh, it's almost like, you know, having an MBA in being a barista, basically. Um, then another company that's not actually in the BGV portfolio, but I think is worth mentioning is Breakroom. Uh, it's a people-powered job comparisons, almost like a glass door for early workers, where people share their own experience and like rate their um, employers so that when people are looking for work they can compare different jobs and see you know usually the way those jobs are advertised are quite opaque and there is no real you know transparency around the hours that you might be expected to work or like the notice period for for shift change that sort of thing so they go into that sort of granularity which really empowers the workers to be able to make more informed choices and obviously we've seen quite a lot of different opportunities and we're not able to invest in any and every that we've seen but there's definitely a, a great entrepreneurial appetite around 
building meaningful solutions that come from people with the actual experience of having linked through those problems. Definitely a believer in founder market fit. So it's helpful when someone's starting a company that solves a problem that they've had personally. So can definitely echo that. In terms of our portfolio, I mentioned that we focus on companies selling to and through the employer, and that breaks into three categories, financial technology, healthcare technology, and workforce technology. So uh, just to give a flavor of the type of companies we work with, I can give an example from each of those categories. Um, From the perspective of workforce technology, a recent investment I've made is in a company called Forage which is reversing the order in which training and employment occur. So it used to be that you get a job and then they train you on how to do it. Um, But what Forage does is it allows employers to build digital project-based training programs that give students, primarily university students or those entering the workforce, um, access to what used to be training reserved for full-time employees. So they work with employers like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, large law firms, and they build these programs and then distribute them at universities. And so it's great for students because they figure out what kind what does it actually mean to be a consultant or mean to work in digital marketing. And if they do go through the project and complete it, the employer is then receiving a highly qualified Um, already pre-assessed candidate for an entry-level role. So really excited about what they're doing. Um, And they're also doing a lot for diversity by unlocking the distribution of these uh, virtual internships. So it used to be that these large employers could only really afford to recruit at Ivy League schools. But today, Forage is distributing that content at universities all around the world, all around the U.S., from community colleges up to the Ivy League. Fantastic. We did an episode on um, virtual internships, actually, and the, the the sort of in the in the early days, the lack of it, and uh, lots of the usual internships just getting parked. So yeah, this is great. Um, Definitely. Oh, the the other two I'll mention just to hit all three categories. As far as healthcare, we talked about mental health, and we're a big investor in a company called Spring Health, which is providing data driven mental health care for employers to provide to their employees. So they have an automated intake process, which is the most accurate in the world in terms of assessing someone's current state of mental health, as well as the most effective treatment for them. And then they have a network of therapists that they're actually able to connect people with. So we've seen that as a a huge, having a huge impact on employees, um, but also a really big impact on employers' bottom line, because the reality is that mental health-related claims costs are extremely expensive for large employers. And so Spring Health's ability to help reduce that and increase productivity is really valuable on both sides. And then the third um, category of financial technology, I think this is certainly relevant to your space as well, Gansu, but we are investors in a company called Brightside, which is a financial wellness benefit for large employers. So they work with large employers who have an employee population of people that make under $50,000 a year, for example, in the US, and they provide them with Um, a financial coach, as well as a variety of tools that can help them consolidate, understand, 
and optimize sort of their financial situation, which ultimately improves retention and improves productivity as well. Thank you. And I mean, just just as we're coming to time, but um, Ganzo, I'm guessing you're you're based in are you based in East London or? Uh- this is a question we get asked a lot. Yeah, we are, we are we our first office was in Bethnal Green. Uh, we're in Oldgate now, but London Lake. Okay, fantastic. And then, Alison, are you near San Francisco these days? I am in San Francisco. I always joke that I'm one of the few left in the city because there has been a mass exodus. It's fascinating <laughs> to watch. So there's been a lot of chat about around the death of Commutersville. I just wondered um, in San Francisco as another large sort of international city whether is that playing out there or are people still slightly going into their offices um because one of the things I was thinking about you know this we, we do all this kind of psychometric and personality testing around employees and everyone knows all the different uh, versions of personality testing and whether they're a green or a red or whichever chart or way you want to cut it um but the reality is that some personality types would prefer to be going into the office, whether that's, you know, um, based on how they prefer to work, uh, whether it's based on their home circumstances being very difficult. So I just wondered if, if we were to sort of go back to forecasting out for past 2020 into, say, five years time, when everything's settled down a little bit, do you foresee uh, a kind of hybrid office method so part at home part in the office how do you think it's all going to to settle down when it does yeah i i mean i think what technology has done for our consumer lives is it's enabled mass personalization right there are the these algorithms that serve you exactly the content that you want to see and the way that you want to see it and i believe the future holds a working environment of mass personalization as well where there are a spectrum of options for how you can work. You can go into the office every day if you like that, or you can work at home in a completely distributed fashion if you prefer that way of working. But it's more a matter of finding the employer that fits your needs and the culture that is conducive to the way that you like to work. And I believe we'll end up in some uh, the median will certainly remain around a hybrid workplace where some people are in the office for a certain number of days per week, but working from home on their individual work. And the office is really reserved for collaborative or high stakes um, in-person meetings. I think that will end up being the norm, but there will certainly remain employers that function under a different type of culture. And Kansu, I mean, for, for low wage uh, employees, I mean, it was in- interesting at the beginning of lockdown because it was sort of the government was very keen on, you know, everyone just must work from home. And of course, lots of people that just isn't their working reality. So um, how about, you know, for, for the um, employees that you have in mind with some of your ventures, how do you see that playing out as well? I think, yeah. To your point, like for most what we now call essential workers, working from home is just not an option. And also for some people, not only, you know, being that being cautious in general, but when they are when they need to self isolate for two weeks, like if that means that they might lose their foreseeable income, uh, then there's a there's a massive trade off there. And uh, we really can't blame people for trying to 
trying to balance the the societal health concerns with their you know livelihood. So I think the hybrid scenario doesn't look that uh, possible for the low wage workers in the very imminent future. And I guess when we're talking about you know the exodus from big cities to other parts of the UK or or whatever country we're talking about, that also comes with the opportunities a big city offers you know the the networks it's not only about being able to live somewhere a bit bigger in a garden but if you don't have the amenities that you're used to not the basic amenities but the things that make life enjoyable in a way uh what would you still go and live somewhere that's you know really remote uh removed from your peers or your family I don't know that. And I guess I, I have to say that I'm coming at it from an you know immigrant perspective where I, I feel the need to live in a city because if I went away and lived somewhere remote in the UK, however much scenic it may be, then that's not, I don't think that's going to improve my life quality in a way. Um, I think we will have to, you know, like with the current crisis, we just need to make our peace with the fact that it's going to be around for a while. So we just need to have strengthened policies so that people don't feel like their, you know, their health should come second to their livelihood. So that's the thing that that's heavy on our minds as, you know, the crisis continues and people need to go and work and, you know, just be in shops and offices every day. Uh, so uh, it comes down to, you know, putting the right sort of pressure uh, so that the right policies are implemented urgently. Fantastic. Right, we're going to sneak in one question before we all go. Um, for anyone listening to this who's just fascinated by this topic, any extra reading, uh, people, projects or reading that you would love to share with our listeners so that has sort of influenced your way of thinking about the future of work or worker tech? Well, I'll be selfish and say I've done a lot of writing on this topic, so I would love to share some of that with anyone that's interested. I'm always looking for insight and perspective on the future of work. So I've written a guide to permanently flipping the workplace. Um, I've written a, a more recent version of the post that you mentioned, Sophie, called The Future of Work is Now Just Work. And those are available on Medium and really um, would be excited to share those. The other book that I read actually several years ago now that had a big impact on how I think about the future of work is a book called The 100 Year Life. And it talks about, yeah, the impact um, that longer lifespans have on our individual lives as well as our societal structures. And I think a lot of what the issues they discuss are really relevant right now. And Kenzie as well. Uh, Yeah, I guess I will... um... I would recommend for like the data behind how we define worker tech, the Resolution Foundation, I think they have recently published a month ago another uh, piece of research. Uh, they do have frequent publications. Uh, they're usually UK-centered, but I like it, it gives me a good understanding of the scale that we're looking at. And I guess, well, I don't know if everyone will find it interesting, but when we first started to work, we've... Um, and as we were, we ourselves were trying to define what work with tech is, which wasn't, you know, a popular term uh, at the time. We did a small series of uh, like a three three episode podcast to try and, you know, talk out talk our way out of what what we wanted to get out of this exercise. So that might be interesting, and that that's available on our blog at BetnoGreenVentures.com. 
And Gansi, thank you very much for your time this afternoon and to you, Alison, in, in your morning. So um, looking forward to getting this out on the podcast and uh, yeah, hope to speak again soon. Thanks, Sophie. Nice Thanks so much for having us. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening in, everyone, and hope you enjoyed it. Um, a big shout out to this week's amazing guests and to UFI Voctech Trust for supporting this podcast series. Um, there's so many more questions to delve into around the world of work as it develops in response to COVID using technology. So I look forward to bringing you more episodes with human resources officers, entrepreneurs, investors and researchers in this space. For all the references mentioned by our guests this week, check out the show notes at theedtechpodcast.com. And if you're listening to this before November the 5th or fireworks night here in the UK, don't forget to sign up to that live stream session also on our show notes. That's it for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.